Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. And they're off. The Republican race is exploding right now. Think about it. You have Ron DeSantis, horse name Captain Charm. We have trotting Trump, the the stallion that will bite another horse. Chris Christie getting in this week. The governor of North Dakota. You haven't heard of him, but you're going to. Doug Burgum. Uh, Senator Tim Scott already in. Nikki Haley already in. And Mike Pence, former vice president, jumping in. It is it is a gold rush, David. What's going on? And let's introduce our guest who will figure it out for no, us. No, we will. But I, it just struck me that if we recite the whole field every show, that would yeah, be the end two of the hours. podcast. Yeah. But uh, no, I mean, we've been bullshitting about this for about a year, and now it's real. We've actually got a race. So we had to bring in somebody who's actually out there and covering it. Uh, one of the great political reporters in America, mm-hmm. Jeff Zeleny, my pal from cnn uh and it must be noted whose illustrious career in journalism kind of started at the chicago tribune at at des moines register and then the chicago tribune so a midwestern guy from nebraska zeleny uh it's good to see you brother where are you today hey guys it's great to be here uh i'm actually back in washington after seven days in the great state of iowa ah now does your mom live in iowa or nebraska now she lives in Nebraska. So I uh-huh. uh, grew up in Nebraska. But uh, you're right. That first job at the Des Moines Register uh, ended up being, um, you know, being helpful for the Rolodex. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, <laughs> now you've been working your Rolodex. What were your impressions uh, last week in Iowa? Well, boy, it's always great to go to the Iowa State Fairgrounds. Uh, the fair wasn't going on, but uh, the roast and ride was. What's a oh, roast yeah. and ride, you may ask? So it's uh, you ride motorcycles and you roast uh some pigs. So there's some barbecue. Uh, and Joni Ernst, the senator from Iowa, puts on this really, uh, it's a pretty good show. It's the Republican equivalent to the old Harkin steak fry that, you know, launched uh-huh. so many candidates along the way, including then Senator uh, Barack Obama. But uh, I was struck by- Destroyed a couple of candidates too. But... It sure has. And I was struck by about a thousand Republican activists or so eating barbecue, shaking hands. A couple things stood out. Um, Tim Scott knows how to work a room, the South Carolina Mm -hmm. senator. I think he literally shook hands with uh, about 900 people there. I watched him go table to table, very efficient with the selfie game. He was very good at all that. But the big takeaway from us seeing DeSantis there, uh, Trump earlier in Iowa, people have open minds. Republican voters there have far more open minds than I think uh, the polls suggest and that we may give them credit for. They're just tuning in. So that was the overall um, sort of impression that 
people are shopping and they're looking for something different and they're not sure who that is yet. You know, it's interesting you say that because when I was out there two months ago sniffing around, I wasn't at a big uh, uh, grassroots event, but talking to operatives, I got a lot of the same thing, which is, you know, the national media has given up on DeSantis because he didn't use the right fork or something at the gridiron. But out here, this race is open and including open to him. I heard the exact same thing. So uh, we're seeing now he didn't scream, don't touch me at anybody. Right. Well, Scott was doing a thousand hands. He he had his retail game on ish. I heard from my spies in the room. His retail game was on. He started actually shaking hands behind a bit of a rope line. And then (laughs) I saw him looking around to see the other candidates who were working the room. I don't know if it was his instinct or an aide who pulled him out. But then next thing you knew, uh, he was also shaking hands. And his wife, of course, uh, appears to be a secret secret, uh, weapon. She was... Also shaking hands, very personable. So no, she's she's is uh, she's good. Mod- modular humanity unit. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, you know, a rope line is his idea of crowd surfing. So the boy's making progress. Yeah, I just uh, I'm waiting for him to take the rope and wrap it around the neck of a reporter who asked him a question, which uh, he he was a little testy there in uh, in in New Hampshire. I'll tell you something. I mean. It's, it's such an interesting process, because especially at this stage. Uh, you know, Kellyanne Conway, I did a podcast with her last fall, and she said it'll be interesting to see if Governor DeSantis loves people as much as he loves his press conferences. And I really thought that, that was the essential question and the one that he's, you know, he's, he's a, uh, trying to answer now, and it'll, it'll be interesting. But back to the wide open uh, race in Iowa. I mean, by definition, I mean, Iowans take their franchise seriously on both sides. So um, they're not in, they're generally not inclined to say in June. Yeah, I'm, I'm done. I've, Oh yeah. It's very late, like all primaries, but I totally agree, particularly there, this thing surges late. So the cake takes a long time to bake. I mean, Scott Walker was ahead in the Iowa Des Moines Register poll at this time in 16. I mean, the same is also, you know, it's a little bit like New Hampshire. I remember uh, when I was a, a young reporter and I was covering another Florida governor. Coolidge. Uh, Ruben Askew, who was running ah. for president in 1984. And uh, he went to a high school and uh, spoke. And I grabbed a kid afterwards and I said, well, what'd you think? He said, well, I was very impressed by Governor Askew. I said, well, if you could vote, because of course he couldn't, like, <laughs> would you vote for him? And the kid said, the kid was so appalled. He said, I haven't met all the candidates yet. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, I mean, these folks are conditioned to, to shop and they don't want to be told that they're going to vote for a candidate. That said, Trump is still the guy to beat. Yeah, no, he's a front runner. I just think a vulnerable one. But you're totally true. They love shopping. That's part of the fun. I I always tell candidates who you know want to jump in, particularly in New Hampshire, and visit a hundred times. You know, signing people up. Remember, every New Hampshire local potentate has three candidates. The one they commit to, the one they secretly commit to, is a backup, and then whoever's ahead in the the surging tracking poll five days out. So you know, they enjoy it. They're they're serial shoppers. But Zelly, um, how much? In terms of the shopping, how much oxygen is there in the tank really for, you know, we, we talked about Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, we just saw a 
and we'll hear a bit from her in a second in a town a hall on CNN. Um, don't know how many Iowans were watching as it was opposite the NBA Finals, Iowa being a big basketball state. But, uh, but it was interesting to watch her. She was quite good, I thought. Um, I have questions about it, but I thought her, you know, she's a, she's a good performer. Um, but uh, wh- what is the reality of, uh, you know, there are only so many evangel- evangelical voters to go around. You've got Pence, you've got Scott competing for those. You've got DeSantis betting on being the most uh, uh, muscular of the social conservatives. And then you have Trump. And it's just, I mean, it's really, we always say the thing is wide open. Look, I mean, there's only so many slices to the pie here. And that's the challenge for so many of these candidates. I mean, they're uh, right now, uh, the activists, the Iowa Republicans who are paying attention to this process. And we should point out, it's not every Iowan. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to uh, find most people tuning in at this point. Um, most will later, or at least the political institute ones, but the ones who are take it so seriously. So they're looking at these candidates with respect. But the point is, how many of them will make it to the debate stage? That first debate, which was announced last week, the dates and the criteria, it's going to be August 23rd in Milwaukee. And each of these candidates have to get 40,000 donors from 20 uh, different states. And the ones who do, I think, will get a look. If you don't make that debate stage, uh, voters in Iowa, they can have as much respect as they want. They're not going to take you seriously as a candidate. So whoever happens to not make that debate stage, uh, that will be ob- obviously a problem for them. But even the ones that do, I think that voters are looking at this now. Um, you know, They want to beat Biden. They talk about how the country is in decline. They talk about inflation. They talk about so much. So I do think that there is a um, an electability argument that is coming up earlier in the process. It always comes up later in the process. But uh, with Trump, of course, um, it used to be so hard to find Republicans to say out loud in public without whispering, I don't want Trump or he didn't win. Republicans are much more open in Iowa, the activists, to speak against Trump and his electability. I was at a gathering of the West Side Conservatives Club. It's a, a group of uh, largely older voters, but, you know, some middle aged ones and a few uh, younger business owners as well, who uh, to a person, they're talking about electability. And they just wonder if Trump is that person. So, yes, Trump occupies, you know, probably at least 30 percent, maybe more than that of the Republican electorate, but not a lot of uh, room for everyone to go around there. But uh, there is still some. So I think the next two months will be key. Who's standing strong in August will uh, will tell us a lot. I mean, the question is, can someone I mean, I do think and I, you know, I speak to Republican friends in Iowa and they say, yeah, you know, he's got 30, 35 maybe 35% that, you know, is not going to go away from him. So the question is, can someone else consolidate the rest? Because I kind of think, guys, if, if Trump wins in Iowa, I think he's going to be, I think he's going to be pretty hard to stop. I really do. Oh, look, I agree with that. If, if he can prove he can actually win some primaries early, yeah, he'll be a steamroller. But Well, especially one that he didn't win last time. 
Agreed. If he can exceed that expectation, it's great for him. It's also great for Joe Biden, who needs a Trump. Uh, but I disagree with you a little bit, David. I, I think nobody, we don't know what anybody has at this point. I mean, two years ago, if you had even whispered you're thinking of running in a primary before Trump lost to Biden, <clears throat> your, your room would burst into flames in the Republican Party. The very fact you've got them all jumping in is, is a proof of the weakness. I don't know if Trump has 30. Tr- Trump could wind up at the end of a campaign process with 40 and win. He could wind up in third place with 18. Um, I think these people who have a static view of it's done pre-campaign and Trump's got in even I remember when Hillary had the crack organization, then there's no way she will ever drop. She's going to get at least, you know, 40 percent locked in. The Clintons can't be beat. It's like Rasputin. You know, Trump Trump can't be killed. Oh, yeah. Well, they shot Rasputin in the face and he died. So I just think it's too early to know. The only fact we have is there are a hell of a lot of people not afraid to run right now which is an interesting start that is not a sign of Trump's strength. But we're safe. One difference is, and, and maybe it's not a difference, but actually, and Jeff will remember this, John Edwards was actually the front runner in Iowa yeah. in 2007, not Hillary. Mm-hmm. It was always clear that Hillary was going to have a struggle. They remember Bill Clinton bypassed Iowa. So there is some analogy here because Trump did lose uh, Iowa back in uh, 2016. But that was before he had a relationship with the evangelical community. And ironically, Mike Pence is getting in the race, I guess, tomorrow. Uh, he was, a, you know, he was brought in as an ambassador to the evangelical community. And now he's fighting to get them back uh, uh, from Trump. But, uh, I, you know, uh, but enough, well, enough about whether or not Trump can hang on to what he has. Let's let's. Let's talk about Haley, because she did do this town hall. Pence is going to do one. Jeff, I was struck by, and well, let's listen to a few bites, but I was struck by just how comfortable she was in that in that room and uh, how much. Right. The first thing that happened in that thing was Jake offered her a seat and she said, no, I'm, I'd rather stand, but if you want to sit down. And it was like, I'm taking command of this room. And she did. She took command of the stage. I think one of the reasons, David, I've seen her in a few of those settings uh, over the last few months. She's been doing more town halls with voters than any other candidate in the race. And you could tell, you know, she's been doing them sometimes in an audience of uh, three, four dozen people. I saw her uh, uh, near the end of March at a, a at a town hall up in Story County near Ames, about an hour from Des Moines. Cold winter night. Two hundred people were there. Um, in sort of a heated barn watching her. So she's been doing a lot of uh, batting practice for this, which I think showed at the town hall that we had. I would just want to play a little clip of it. The the places where she really, you could see she was really leaning in, she felt really comfortable, was on the foreign policy questions. You know, having been the UN ambassador, she has a very well-developed view, and it does separate her uh, from the others as when she was talking about Ukraine. I think that that's a mistake that too many have made. That's exactly what got the Europeans in this position with Russia in the first place, is that they're too trustful. You can't be trustful of a regime that goes in and tries to take away people's freedoms. What we need to understand is that Ukraine has the ability to win, but we have to think bigger than that. And for them to sit there and say that this is a territorial dispute, that's just not the case. To say that we should stay neutral, it is in the best interest of America. It's in the best interest of our national security for Ukraine to win. We have to see this through. We have to finish it. 
So obviously, Murphy, she was talking about uh, the front runners, Trump and DeSantis, both of mm-hmm. whom, I mean, Trump most uh, pronounced, uh, pronouncedly, but uh, DeSantis as well as cast doubt on the, uh, on the, uh, uh, on, on what our posture should be uh, in Ukraine and how deeply we should be invested there. Uh, does that fly? In the Republican Party now? Oh, I think there's room for it. Um, again, she's trying that contrast. She's trying to play to her resume. And she's very fluent and comfortable communicating foreign policy stuff. And they've given her a natural contrast there. But is it the material thing that will rocket her above the others? You know, her problem is she's got communication skills, but she doesn't tend to commit to a message strategy. Remember, she was going to give the big speech on abortion and grab the race got teed up, and then she had nothing to say. You know, I joke that her Secret Service code name ought to be too clever by half because when she has a moment, she doesn't pick a side. Uh, The other thing, you know what I care about this town hall? I don't really care if any Iowans saw it. It would be helpful if they do. It will have an impact. But did any donors see it? Because the big tell on her is in her first quarter report, her federal hard money in the campaign was $4 million bucks, And we all know the campaign managers take half a million in bills and put them in the drawer to pump that number. She's got to show some cash now in July in the second quarter report, or she's not going to be on television. She She's not going to have the field operation. And she'll be in the Scott Walker Museum is example number two, because she's not going to make it to Thanksgiving. Where so, is that museum? I've never even been there under construction in milwaukee it's near the debate site but but so that is what nikki has to get going and i think they know that she was in baltimore if you look at her schedule it's not primary voter as much as finance which is the situation she's in but if she can get money and she can get on that debate i don't know if she has forty thousand donors uh but if she can get them and you can get forty thousand donors if you're willing to lose enough money getting them which is not a luxury she has but if she gets on the debate stage she may have her moment it is yeah. possible. She no, can but your point, your point is important, uh, and this is the thing that I took away from it. For all of the skill that she showed, uh, she is constantly trying to parse in ways to finesse difficult uh, questions. You know, Jake uh, uh, Tapper asked her about um, uh, about Kim Jong Un and about Trump's uh, ridiculous congratulations note. To Tim Kim Jong Un on uh, North Korea being uh, placed on the board of the World Health Organization. Well, I I don't have time to query you guys about that. I, nobody can crawl into his head on stuff like that. But she got asked the question. But the question that Jake asked was, "Were you uncomfortable yep. with his position on North Korea when you were the UN ambassador?" And this is what she said. Were you uncomfortable um, with how Mr. Trump uh, dealt with and how his attitude was towards Kim Jong-un while you worked at the UN? I mean, Kim Jong-un is a thug. And if you see what he has done to his own people in North Korea, when money went to North Korea, it didn't go to feed their people. It went to feed their nuclear program. There's nothing good or decent about Kim Jong-un. There's no reason we should ever congratulate the fact that they are now vice chair of the World Health Organization. Notice that she calls Kim Jong-un names. She's clearly uh, views him as a villain, but she never says, yeah, I was uncomfortable when Trump took that position. 
in other places, you know, so, so that's one thing. I, I don't think she's, I mean, the bottom line is she started off, she makes, she made her opening pitch, uh, Jeff and Mike, she made her opening pitch about the fact that we've got to get past the, 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 the vendettas. We've got to get past the negativity. We've got to come together and so on. But she never said, and this guy is the opposite of that. He, she never said, this is where he would take us. She, 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 when it comes to Trump, less with DeSantis, she goes for the capillary, not the jugular. And uh, that's one issue uh, that I think is problematical. Um, I don't, you know, I said on this, this show the other night that um, uh, no risk baseball is second division baseball. The biggest risk you can take in this race, if you're a Nikki Haley or any of the others, is to not take big swings here. Uh, and not sort of be willing to be venturesome in your critiques because uh, I don't think she's going to wrest a lot of Trump's voters away. Uh, and the question is, is there a lane for someone like her who's really a more traditional conservative uh, Republican uh, who uh, who wants to chart a different course? And so I, I think that's an issue. I think that is the question. I mean, the uh, she certainly stands apart by the fact that she uh, as of now, is the only woman running in the race. And she talked about that with pretty good humor. I think one of her best lines overall, she's like, look, no job I've ever applied for has there been a long line of uh, of people for the women's room. And the crowd just erupted in applause. But she pulled her punches on Trump and used them on DeSantis. Obviously, it's clear her road to ever um, emerging or rising is to bring DeSantis down. But there were many opportunities to sort of go after Trump and the kind of voter that she's going to need would welcome hearing that. I mean, she's never going to be the Trumpiest person um, in the race at all, even among the candidates. So that was a little surprising. Um, you know, but at this point, they're all still most of the candidates are still tiptoeing around uh, Trump. But she went after DeSantis um, more uh, forcefully and directly calling him hypocritical on Disney uh, than we've heard her do before. Let's hear that clip. Here you have a woke company. They've been woke for years. I remember when Disney went after President Trump for immigration. This is nothing new. So here you have DeSantis, who accepted 50,000 in political contributions from Disney. He went and put their executives and their lobbyists on prominent boards throughout Florida. And he went and basically gave the highest corporate subsidies in Florida history to Disney. But because they went and criticized him, now he's going to spend taxpayer dollars on a lawsuit. It's just like all this vendetta stuff. We've been down that road again. We can't go down that. You know, I think for all the criticism Pence is getting in this week is going to get about being for Trump before he was against Trump. She's got that problem on steroids. Yeah, she does. She does. That really is her identity. It's back to the too clever by half thing. You know, first she was dubious. She was for Rubio originally. Then she's all in for Trump. <laughs> she condemned Trump. I Right, 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 right. No, I was there. I totally remember. And then she pivots to being super for Trump, looking the other way on things like North Korea, which are fundamental. Then she tried to ace Pence out of the VP spot by really sucking up to Trump. Then, you know, she pivoted again to be anti-Trump now. So it is, you know, she is the spinning candidate. And that is a hard, indelible ink to get rid of. And Trump will point it out if she ever gets big enough to counterattack, right? 
right now, the pros are saying, look, she's probably got a million five in the bank if she's not raising any money. Don't elevate her. You know, this could be the peak of her campaign unless money comes in. But she does have skills, and I'm sure she's got some cautious advisors saying, hey, Nikki, you know, go beat up DeSantis, try to pick a fight, get elevated. But careful on everybody else, VP. Like I said, no risk baseball is second division baseball. I agree. She, she's got to plant her feet somewhere. And Jeff, she, you know, one other place where she didn't want to was on the issue of abortion. And uh, her successor just signed a six-week abortion ban in South Carolina. Jake asked her about it and whether she would have signed or she would sign such a ban. And here's what she said. If a six week ban theoretically came to your desk, would you sign it? But why? Why? I will answer that when you answer, when you ask Kamala and Biden if they would agree to 37 weeks, 38 weeks, 39 weeks, then I'll answer your question. Yeah, that's a punt. You know, and again, she had built up that big speech on this and had nothing to say. She had a she had a moment there in that town hall and before it to grab the issue from a unique point of view and be kind of moderately conservative on it. Scott's doing it smarter. He's saying, y'all sign the most pro-life bill that the Congress will pass, hint, hint, for a general election. She's sort of saying that as well. But, but Jeff, my, my whole impression, first of all, that sort of too cute by half thing is a problem. Too clever by half is, is the problem. But, the, uh, uh, but it, it also seems to me that she is a sort of center-right Republican, uh, you know, who is signifying in weird ways to the base. So on guns, uh, she would she said she wouldn't support a red flag uh, law. On uh, uh, you know, she called uh, uh, women uh, trans uh, uh, women in sports the greatest women's issue of our time, which I think most women would not agree with. She's doing. She's sort of like showing flashes to say to the Trump DeSantis base, you know, I'm actually I'm good. You can trust me. But her instincts seem to be pulling her in a different direction. It just seems like a uh, like a uh, a game of twister. Yeah, it is sort of odd. I mean, on abortion, she takes she calls for a consensus. So on that, it's like she's almost looking ahead to next year as a general election message uh, talking about. Um, abortion, not wanting to be a pin down there. Um, but on the trans thing, she uh, says that line at most every one of her town halls. I think it is simply the most convenient way for her to uh, show that she is not a moderate, that she is a, she's on the far right. And there's no downside in her view, at least for sort of going after trans, but then by linking it without any evidence to suicide yes. and things, I think she's walking down a line, um, a road of uh, perhaps uh, turning off some voters who may be available to her in this primary, because she's not going to be the most evangelical candidate right, in the that's race. That's the point. Yeah. Well, she'll wind up everybody's fourth choice and out of money. And, I, you know, unless something great happens in an early debate, uh, I think she's on the slide. You have to decide, especially if you're sort of coming from behind, like, what is my what is my uh, comparative advantage here? What distinguishes me from the pack and the willingness to chart a completely different uh, course and say, yeah, I, I, you know, and she she goes halfway. I want vendetta politics i don't i want to build consensus i want to bring this country together and so on uh but then you have to carry through on it and embrace proof points of that 
And that's where she gets bogged down. You can't be culture war and tonal peace. They're hard to hard to resolve, and she's never going to out-culture war DeSantis. Okay, then let's take a break right here, and we'll be right back. Speaking of war, let's move on to the candidate of war, who, in my view, may get fewer votes because primary voters aren't always so excited, at least last time, than Haley, which means not a lot of votes, but could be catalytic, uh, particularly if he can find a way in the debate. And I'm talking, of course, about former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who is throwing his steel helmet into the ring uh, this week. And he denies he's an assassin, but he's sure focused on Donald Trump. Now, in 16, when he focused like he says he will this time, totally on New Hampshire, I can't remember if he came in fifth or sixth. So voters may not like him, but Marco Rubio can tell you he can affect the outcome of a moment. So what do we what do we think about Christie? Will it hog out all the attention Christie and Trump throwing chairs at each other? Uh, will he get shut out of the debate and lose his weapon? But I think he can do it in the news cycle every day and the media will eat it up. He'll be on TV if he attacks Trump. What do you guys think? Look, I think his biggest uh, hurdle now is to get to that debate yeah. stage. If he does get to the debate stage, then that's good. The question, though, is Trump going to be on the stage? If Christie's there, would Trump yeah. sort of decline to go? I'm still of the mind that uh, the former president loves the oxygen. He gives interviews to these random outlets. I think he will end up showing up at the debate. But if Christie's on stage, who knows? But otherwise, I don't know. It is. Uh, I remember his his campaign going to many of his events in 2015 and 16. There was some question if that was even his moment. His moment, perhaps, was in 2012. Well, yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. So it's really uh, open question. I think uh, if this is his moment, but he will play a role in this race without a doubt. Um, and assassin. I know he disputes that uh, characterization, which the Wall Street Journal editorial suggested that, but seems a pretty apt word. First of all, on the, the question of whether Trump shows up at the debate, if I were advising Trump, I would say don't. And I, the reason I would say don't go to the first debate is because after everybody pisses on him for not being at the first debate, they're going to go after DeSantis because they have to get to get to where they want to go. They have to go after DeSantis. I mean, Chris Christie could be just as effective uh, against DeSantis as he is against Trump. And uh, so that would be the reason not to go. Um, I think, you know, I, I think Christie's a really, really, I mean, I, the other night uh, on CNN, they replayed the uh, clip of him with, uh, you know, taking Rubio apart in that debate in New Hampshire. It really is a textbook thing. It was the big, it was the most incredible takedown I've ever seen uh, in a debate. He's really, really skilled. The question is, does he even get on that debate stage? Yeah, does he have enough money, the prospect at a loss, to generate 40,000 in six donors, which is a huge, huge open question. But I, I think even in the media cycle he'll be, because he'll get more attention than his standing deserves. And I, I agree, I give Trump the same advice on a debate, but Trump doesn't take advice. And as if everybody else frames it as Trump's too weak, scaredy cat, beaten by Biden, I think you can bait him into the debate. And, you know, there is some risk, too, that a lot of these people will be doing it for the first time and you don't become 
a successful statewide Republican politician by being boisterous at debates. Christie is a unique animal. So Trump could dominate it again and actually have an okay debate. It's not out of the question. So, uh, but I agree, this is the most interesting thing going on right now. And uh, let me ask you a question, though. You know, he gets all this attention because he is so, he is kind of a, an assassin and he is fearless on these debate stages. But it also, part of that fearlessness is Christie may also try and be what I described earlier that uh, Haley wants to be. I mean, he may be the person who just stakes out uh, some positions that are, out of the mainstream or what is the Republican sort of cultural right mainstream now and tries to take that constituency that is, uh, you know, not on board on, in the, uh, you know, with the whole DeSantis run. To yeah, the, right the problem program. with that is he, he could be the snowplow, but there are plenty of other people who can sell those tickets because everybody hates Christie. You know, he can open the wedge. And the other thing, the candidates, are, the smart staffs are looking at, you got 172,000 Democrats and independents in Iowa who voted in the last caucus who have nothing to do on caucus night. And it is very easy to show up at a Republican caucus and be a Republican for a week. Uh, and so, you know, will he try to target those people? Will others try? Because if 25,000 of them show up in a Republican caucus of 160,000, it's pretty material. So I don't know. This one's going to be different and interesting. And I think Christie, after the first routine of I'm the Trump biter, is going to need something else. It might be that ideological thing you're talking about, David. It might be some process story for the media. But you're right. He'll need a second act or they'll get tired of it. And his polling probably won't support enough to think he deserves a lot of coverage and, and, and more attention. He'd be smart to run as the guy who he would have run as in 2012. He'd be smart yeah. to run as the conservative Republican governor of a, of a blue state who, uh, you know, who took on some of these battles, but knows how to work with people and be productive and so on. That, that's, that's, to me, the best uh, story that he can tell. He doesn't just want to be uh, the big heat from, you know, the big, <laughs> yeah, they, the, big the hit man from, from Bayonne. Jersey. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the truth is, if he did the 2012 act in the debate and only clobbered Trump once, but really hard, it would be pretty good. It would give him some favorables, and then the media would go to him for follow-up for three weeks, and they'd have a spat in the media. He doesn't need to make the debate all about that. Interesting, Jeff Zelenia. You saw Governor Sununu's uh, piece. You know, Tana Bash did this interview with him yesterday where he announced that he wasn't going to run. And he followed with a piece in the Washington Post and he had an admonition in there and he said, no one can stop candidates from entering this race, but candidates with no path to victory must have the discipline to get out. Anyone polling in the low single digits by this winter needs to have the courage to hang it up and head home because he says if they don't, Donald Trump will be the nominee again. How much do you think that message has been internalized by other Republicans and how Will donors enforce it? How will that be enforced? Because we already have this big field, including the governor of North Dakota, uh, who uh, uh, Bergam, who uh, Mike mentioned earlier. This is already a big field. It is a big field. And um, the exact same message from Governor Sununu in The Washington Post was something that Bob Vanderplatz, he's an evangelical yeah. leader, influential Huge. head of this uh, group in Iowa called the Family Leader. And in a Republican uh, caucus, he's significant. And he told me something that I think will stick with me. He said, it doesn't matter how many get in. He's like, it matters when they get out. 
So they're mm -hmm. already thinking ahead to that. And look, there is no secret meeting that can be convened to push <laughs> people out. It'll happen by attrition on some people. Mike, you were talking about Nikki Haley's fundraising. Um, she may be one of the most talented communicators uh, in the field, but if she doesn't have gas in the tank, it's not going to matter. Right. Uh, super PACs are going to play a big role this year in keeping some people uh, around longer than perhaps their uh, shelf life actually should be. But I do think that just given what happened in the end of 2015, early 16, that that is a a warning sign that is a lesson. So we will see if uh, if that lesson is learned. Ego is a hard thing, you know, to convince someone that you know, sir, you're not going to be president, ma'am, you're not going to be president. But I do think that there'll be a lot of pressure after Thanksgiving to uh, make some moves. Yeah, the high dollar donor world is going to be ruthless about this. There is, I mean, I've operated in that world for a long time, and there is more focus on if somebody can beat Trump in Iowa, then it's got to be a two and a half candidate race into New Hampshire. And that's it. And the money will stop. And the, the kind of people who are the non-Trump people are not super low dollar fundraisers. So it's not like the online fundraising, I think, will really prop them up. Now, you're right. They, they all want to go fight till the last dog dies. But it, I think we're in a little bit of a new environment. The other thing is the excitement. If somebody's a Trump killer in Iowa, there's going to be a surge of money rolling into them that try to unify that. It's very clear DeSantis is all in in Iowa and that he thinks this is the place to ambush Trump. This is the place to drive all these other folks out. Uh, and he has this, you know, we, you mentioned super PACs. He was able to transfer $80 million from his state funds into uh, this uh, never back down super PAC that was created to support his candidacy. Jeff Rowe, who managed uh, uh, Cruz's campaign, is running this super PAC, knows a lot about Iowa, obviously pushing hard uh, this culture war uh, argument. Uh, but, Mike, you ran a super PAC for Jeb Bush. I'm trying to figure They're doing all the field, apparently. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't want to ruin That's his That's really career, a, kind but... of an awkward arrangement. Yeah, look, it's hard. What super PACs are good at is is paid communication, digital mail, phones, uh, television ads, and you can raise somebody's negative and you can try to raise your candidates positive. You can defend them from attacks. What you can't do is run a hundred small group meetings in Iowa gyms with voter interaction. You can provide air cover uh, and you can be effective at that, even though you pay more per spot than the candidate does uh, by the nature of the advertising law. But it's really hard to do field. Now, what Jeff Rowe is doing is they've established something called Fort Benning, where they're training a lot of paid canvassers yes. to go out and hit doors. Uh, we did that in Right to Rise. We hit tens of thousands of doors in New Hampshire, voter IDing, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it's still not the same. And what I think Jeff will find frustrating is you can't call up the candidate and say, you, we need a new debate strategy. That's not working. You're, you're, you're purely, you're kind of like the car companies. You're running the national brand advertising, but you're not running the showroom floor where the cars are sold. He just had some sort of presser or interview where he very much was putting his foot on the gas of the culture, you know, run right on the culture war. Yeah, stuff. that's their ticket. So, that's where the, yeah. so, I mean, generally the campaign sends a signal to the super PAC and this looks like the super PAC sending a signal to the candidate, just keep keep your foot on that pedal. This is where we want to go. 
Yeah. Zelani, did you see any sign of this field activity that arose when you were in Iowa? Because I do hear from some people there saying, yeah, we got some knocks on the door and so on. I mean, it's one of the best uh, gigs in the state. They're hiring so many people. If you're a consultant, for sure. Uh, I was having drinks with a couple of Republican consultants who are thrilled that Jeff Rowe and the Super PAC uh, are in town. A lot of people are going to be on the payroll. I walked out of a, a DeSantis event. And there literally were about a dozen um, paid staffers wearing pink shirts, all holding clipboards, asking these voters to uh, commit to caucus. That's what, you know, sign up to commit to. No one's going to commit now, obviously. But it was like my first thought was, are these like the orange stocking cap for Howard Dean people? There were so (laughs) many and they weren't your friends and neighbors. They were paid staffers. So we don't know the answer to this question yet. But the question is. Do all these paid staffers for Never Back Down, the DeSantis Super PAC, are they as committed and as effective uh, come the end of the year at at signing people up and door knocking than your friends and neighbors are that won the the state for Obama in 2008 with with volunteers? And I think there's good reason to be skeptical about that. We had 350 or something paid organizers uh, who started moving in in March, but they worked those were kids who believed in Obama, though. These weren't random. Absolutely. Jobs. And they lived in these communities and they became, I mean, one of them got asked to stay and run for the city council in the community in which he is organizing. So it was organic in a way that this is not organic. So I have questions. I think they're trying to affect the Obama strategy, you know, the field strategy. I just don't know if you can do it like this. You, you know, mercenaries don't work out when things are tough. They go to the next paycheck and the next war. Hey, I want to play a little beat from somebody who's going to get a little more famous later this week. The man from Arthur. I ignored those who said North Dakota was too small, too cold, and too remote to build a world-class software company. So I literally bet the farm to help build a tiny startup into a billion-dollar company with customers in 132 countries. A kid from small-town North Dakota. That's America. So that is the governor of North Dakota, two-term governor, beat the Republican expected-to-win guy at the beginning. He is a billionaire who built a software company. His name is Doug Burgum, and he is going to be the Western common sense beyond Trump candidate. And people say, North Dakota, well, North Dakota billionaire who can self-fund and compete on the airwaves from an adjacent farm state which has an interesting history in the Iowa caucus. Uh, He, along with Tim Scott, I think are going to be the two leading turn the page, move forward candidates. Going to be interesting. We'll see how he does. Just for the record, you're not working for him, right? Of course not. Nope. I'm not working for any of these guys. But I like Bergham. I like him a lot. I like Scott. I I, I heard you mention the self-funding billionaire, and I just thought I should ask. Oh, if I wasn't retired from it, I'd be in Fargo now putting this thing into first place. But my point is, he is interesting. Yeah. And I recommend that video. Uh, we're tweeted out on the show uh, Twitter page. I put it out on mine. But anyway, keep an eye on him because he's a fresh face. Sally, what's your view? Look, I think Mike's right. I mean, if you watch that video, your first thing is, I want to take a summer vacation in North Dakota. I mean, it's <laughs> it's beautiful. And he he looks different and sounds different than everyone else in the race. I mean, he doesn't have to make the outsider argument. It's made for him. Uh, look, I mean, he... He founded a software company in the early 80s. He sold it to Microsoft uh, and has uh, enough money to fuel this as long as he wants to go. I agree with Mike in the sense that Northwest Iowa, 
the around the Sioux City area, Greater Siouxland, they call it the most important terrain in an Iowa Republican caucus. And this is a kind of guy, a kind of message that I think could play well there. The question is hanging over all this, is it still possible to, uh, you know, be the local candidate or are these campaigns so nationalized that uh, Republican activists and voters are thinking more with like their national hat than who's in front of him? But I think he'll get a lot of looks. It's a little bit late for him. I think, you know, he probably would have benefited from um, a few more weeks or months. But look, it's uh, early June. Let's see how much time he spends in Iowa. I'm already envisioning him at the Iowa State Fair. He's literally central casting. And yeah. I think he'll be refreshing to a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, he may sponsor the whole damn thing. He, he looks like a cowboy. Check out that video. Uh, we're, we're see if he's ready for the majors. But, boy, he's interesting, and that's worth a lot because you're going to have Trump and Christine DeSantis all throwing names at each other. You're going to have Nikki, who's got no money to be on TV, uh, Tim Scott, who I think is a contender, and then this guy. We'll see. But I, he's worth serious attention if he can execute. By summer, it could be the uh, the Doug uh, Burgum uh, fried Twinkie booth. Uh, he may, you know, so he may just buy all the concessions there. All right, we're going to leave for a minute to pay the power bill, and then we'll be right back. Before you go, Zeleny, because I know you have to run, I just want to cover a few more things. It's beginning to look like Trump may get whacked again, uh, this time by the feds in this document case. I'm of mixed minds on this, and I think Murphy and I will probably disagree on this, but I think he set up a construct, at least with his supporters, where every time something like this happens, it's one more bit of evidence that the deep state is coming after him and them to try and silence them and take him out in this campaign. I think it's one of the reasons why he's in the campaign. But the question is, like, if there is another indictment, will it have the same effect that the last one did, which is he actually grew? Or is this going to be different? I think it could be different. We'll see what the indictment is, if there is one. But it might not just be one. I mean, there's this, and then the Georgia uh, news is going to uh, come August. I think that, you know, uh, one of the reasons that I think people rallied around him was there was nothing else really going on in the race. DeSantis wasn't in yet. There weren't all these options. A lot of Republicans will not rally around him. His true supporters will, obviously, but I think it will, it, there's a potential of it having a very different effect. It gets back to what I said earlier about electability. People are looking down the road, and no matter your questions about uh, Joe Biden's, the estate of his, uh, of his health politically and otherwise, people will but Republicans want to win. And I think that uh, Trump with three indictments under his belt is not helpful. Yeah, it makes all of Trump's problems bigger. This thing is significantly worse than the New York deal, which was a speeding ticket from a political DA who was tailor-made to offend the Republican base. This thing is bigger. Is it material enough to knock Trump out of the race? No, but it's miracle grow for all the Trump fatigue problems he already has. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, right now he and both he and DeSantis are a point or two ahead of Biden in the aggregate polls. So the electability thing may not may not be as obvious uh, to at least to his supporters. But um, be, uh, so, Jeff, the last thing, just Biden himself, uh, we, we have a clip. I won't play it uh, of Biden from this 
um, Oval Office thing. I, I want to ask you and and Mike as well. I was a little, I I was wondering about the deployment of the Oval around this particular issue, uh, which was the debt ceiling deal, because it struck me that nobody outside of Washington D.C. saw this. I think everybody kind of believed that this was a Washington thing that they were going to solve and they solved it and um so it seemed odd on a friday night to to do to do this oval um in which he hailed bipartisanship and so which i think is clearly going to be his message that he can in this messy chaotic world he can be this ballast but what was your impression of that were you surprised that they did it and I mean, it feels like it's a distant memory even today, and we're sitting here on Tuesday. It almost seemed as though that they were trying it out to see how he looked on that set because uh, he hadn't given an Oval Office address. I thought he looked good. I thought he filled the. I thought he filled the room. There's always a question with like young presidents. I remember George W. Bush's uh, first Oval Office um, address, obviously um, in the wake of 9/11, uh, the Obama first Oval Office address. Yeah, uh, you know, true. and there was some question with you know, younger presidents. How do they sort of look in there? It looked very comfortable for President Biden. So I think that it was kind of an odd time to deploy it, sure. But at the same time, he's trying to be heard among all these other Republican candidates. I think probably one of the biggest reasons he did it, it was the day after he, you know, had that uncomfortable uh, mishap in Colorado. He slipped on a sandbag and fell down. So this was a, an image that I think they wanted um, to, uh, you know, having people's minds, I guess, going into the weekend. But the biggest question of all this, are people still uh, listening to the president, not just on that Friday night, but sort of overall independents and Democrats who voted for him? I don't know. I mean, we'll see. But I'm with Jeff on this. I thought it was a solid win for them. The Oval was appropriate. He looked like a president. And the message was, all right, I got the squabbling children to work this thing out, only grown up in town. And he was gracious about it to the Republicans. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think he deraged the whole issue and floated above it a bit. So does he solve all his reelect problems? That does, uh, you guys, play against the tenor of the Republican race. Yeah, totally. And he's the only guy in town with that ticket. And he, he put it in the Oval. He looked like a president. And he, he got everything out of that you can get. You know, it's only a double. But it was a big double. And he needed something like that. So I, I think it was the tone was perfectly right. It was retro, which I think was refreshing which is we worked it out. We compromised the way Washington ought to work. You can all go to bed, everything. Daddy's in charge. So I thought they played the Biden card as well as they could there. And I, I, I think that was well done by the White House. And the fall, in, I, I, you know, that sent shutters through yeah. Repu uh, Democratic ranks. Uh, the fall at the Air Force uh, speech tripped over the sandbag because if he had fallen in a different way and had to be carried out of there. Yeah, it could have been a disaster. And there may be a health day. You know, you might have a little minor thing, but the, it's going to be a huge thing because it's him. I mean, the way to solve that is go get somebody else, but the party didn't want to do it and Biden didn't want to do it. So they're going to be living with that kind of stuff all the way in. I thought it was just adroit to switch up, put him in the Oval and let him be daddy in charge president. And I thought he did it well. I think we're going to lose Jeff here, who's got real news to report. I'm, he's putting on his TV jacket there. Yeah, look how dapper he is. Yeah. Well, let, let's give him an escape, and then we can go to uh, go to a few final things. Jeff, thank you so much for being here with us. Good to see you, brother. Come back often. Hey guys, it's great to join you. Have a good one. All right, you too. All right. Well, Jeff is a expert broadcaster, and he knows how to walk off to music. 
If you have a question for the hacks and our guest, all you got to do is email it to our Secret Underground headquarters in Chicago. Our email address, hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com. Murphy, a guy named Albert says, Uh yeah, Tim Scott has been fundraising off of comments hosts of The View have made about him. What is the strategy behind then going on The View? Is it just to fundraise more? That is a shrewd question, Albert. And I know it was shrewd because my dad, Joe Murphy's middle name is Albert. So all you clever guys out there, I thought that was an interesting and telling moment. And it was good strategy for Scott. You have to think from the point of view, not of a left-wing socialist tax on tap listener, but as a Republican primary voter. And culturally, and culture is just as important as anything else in these political contests, there is a feeling among Republican primary voters that we are now a nation where everybody says they're a victim. We're just full of victim grievance. Now, you can argue Trump makes that argument, too. But their point of view is when they see an African-American who's a proud conservative saying, you know, the country doesn't suck. My grandfather grew up in segregated South Carolina, but he believed in America. Now look at me, and I am not an outlier. We are rising everywhere because the country is better. We're America. We make progress. That is a powerful message. Now, it is a message you don't hear from kind of the left of center pop culture world, which finds it very hard to calculate why an African-American can be a conservative because we all know all African-Americans have to be Democrats, right? Isn't that some kind of rule? Well, Scott is challenging that which resonates like a massive gong among a lot of Republican primary voters. So I thought it is what he believes. He makes a strong case. It deserves a fair argument in our pop culture, which is kind of hostile to that argument, and it'll help him politically in the Republican Party. So shrewd move, I thought, by Scott for a primary. So he also got booed by the audience because he said he thought DeSantis was on the right track uh, with his the law that Disney uh, right. I didn't uh, say it was uh, perfect, uh, but on the but court. No, 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 no. The, well, yeah. well, no because what do you think? What was your take? I agree with everything you said. Listen, my view is no pun intended. I mean, there, there, <laughs> there are a lot of elements of what he's saying that are similar to what Barack Obama was saying in 2007 and yeah. 2008, using his own biography as evidence of the progress that America made. The dispute is over, and I think it's a significant one, uh, how much, you know, what 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 is the work yet yet to be done or are we going to be self-satisfied and just declare victory and forget about the fact that we still have uh, vestiges of uh, discrimination that that need to be dealt with and so that's the debate but i i listen i i i thought it was a, a smart move going on there and by the way at this albert isn't your father is it it was it, no no he uh he, he would uh he has other topics that he would prefer, uh, but it is a it is a great name. All right, for you, David, yes. from Anne, Anne with yes. an E. Mike Pence has officially filed to run for president. What do you think are his greatest assets and most burdensome weaknesses? Good question. We should just review some of the history here. Mike Pence was recruited, I mentioned this earlier, recruited uh, in 2016 by Donald Trump, because Mike Pence is an evangelical uh, uh, leader and has been uh, close to that movement from the beginning. He's a very, very strong social conservative. Uh, and, you know, theoretically, that should help him in a party where that, that vote index 
indexes high, and in a state like Iowa where it indexes high. The problem is that Trump then uh, expropriated that base from him and, uh, and has great uh, following there. Others are going after it, Scott, DeSantis, and so on. That's number one. Number two, the fact that he stood up, and I think to his everlasting credit, and certified that election on January 6th, uh, won him the enmity of large numbers of Republicans who remain loyal to Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those two things alone are, are obstacles for him. He's also an exponent of a Republicanism that I think may be not as relevant in today's Republican Party. He's an old fiscal conservative, uh, strong on defense politician. And uh, I just don't know that there's space for that in this Republican base. Murphy, you would know better than I. Well, my main thing is his enemies are more passionate than his friends. I mean, he he is not a new face enough to really be a move beyond Trump. He's got some Trump stain on him, although he was a patriot at the key moment by all accounts. On the other hand, he's too disloyal for Trump people to consider him anything but an enemy, the the real core. And so you, you can see him say, struggling over the, the, yeah, the, you, you yeah, put that so well. And he struggles with this because he was an impeccably loyal until the final moment when right, where he, he had, had to make a choice. And right. in the movie, he's the hero because he made the right choice. But the Trump world, he has animosity and the move beyond Trump world. He's like number four. Yeah. You know, so where where's the magic bean? Now, he's a crafty old Republican politician. And he's for a lot of stuff the primary voters are. It's just hard for me to find the category worth having that he dominates. Uh, And I think he'll have fundraising trouble, too. I'm interested. And boy, oh, boy, I can hardly wait till July when we see the end of June reports to see what kind of gas they all have in the tank. I know DeSantis has money. Scott has money. Burgum could write a check. Everybody else, you know, whether they even have table stakes, we're not going to know yet. Can't stress that enough. The reason Barack Obama was able to survive some very... Uh, tough months when he was being written out of the script by the conventional wisdom people was because he was able to raise a lot of money, a lot of it in small donations, but he was able to compete with the Clinton fundraising machine. Uh, And that kept him in the race and it allowed us the resources to do the things that we needed to do. Uh, And before anybody votes, these things are, these, these fundraising reports become surrogates for Totally. For for reporters, it's it's one benchmark, one tangible benchmark of competitiveness. So those filings are going to be really critical. Important. You're so right. The, you know, one of the oddball parts about this that makes it hard to decode is the conventional wisdom world in the punditocracy is required by business realities to treat every day like an important day, most important day in the race, and they decide long before the early caucus and primary voters do. So, you know, it, it right now there's this kind of bell jar. Oh, he had a thousand people at the hog festival. Not unimportant, but this this cake cooks slow. And we're really not going to know where the Iowa caucus race is till the end of the year. And the pronouncements in the meantime are going to never end about who's up and who's down. And that does affect your fundraising. So you kind of get caught, even if you have potential to surge because you're good. You may be choked out and out of any money, which is kind of where Nikki is heading, unless she has a great quarter and shows five or six million new cash, which is still minimal, but enough to maybe keep going in Iowa. So you're you're caught in a funhouse, bizarro land world of the D.C. telling you you're dead before the race really starts and affecting your fundraising to make you dead. 
it's crazy. Yeah, and we're being uh, we're being choked out of time right now. So that was a fun one, X. Okay, will... brother. Good to see you. We'll be back soon. <laughs>